0: Society Builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society Builders.
1: Society Builders, with your host, Dwayne Varane. Welcome to Society Builders, and thanks for joining the conversation for Social Transformation. Our last episode was the first part of a two part series, exploring how Abdu'l-Bahá interacted with social discourses of his day around the topic of governance reform in Iran. For these two episodes, we've been listening to Dr. Mujahn Momen, one of the world's leading authorities on the history of the early Persian Pai community. In Part 1, Dr. Momen provided us with the background and context to a series of books written by Abdu'l-Bahá specifically engaging with this governance discourse. He explained how corruption was rife and how Iran was in desperate need for governance reform, largely responding to the challenges and opportunities associated with modernity. Specifically, we explored two books written anonymously by Abdu'l-Bahá. The first, The Secret of Divine Civilization explores the need for a wide range of reforms, but frames this within the context of this idea of governance with integrity, that without a moral and ethical framework, even the best intended reforms will ultimately fail. His second book, A Treatise on Politics, which hasn't yet been translated into English, was written in response to the specific circumstances surrounding the tobacco rebellion of 1891. And here, Abdu'l-Bahá provides warnings about the dangers of clerical rule in Iran, calling for a separation of church and state, so to speak. Now, I'm not doing this last episode justice in providing you with this short summary, so if you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to listen to it before you start today's episode, because it provides the background and context you need to understand today's discussion. So today, we're going to listen to part two of my interview with Dr. Men, exploring the response from the Baha'i community to the guidance which Abdu'l-Baha provided around governance reform how these early Persian Baha'i believers responded and engaged in society building in their time and what impact this ultimately had on the society around it, including in the rise of Iran's first democratic institutions. But we'll also explore a key shift, a key pivot for the community, following Abdu'l-Baha's advice to disengage in what had become a highly divisive, political, and contentious debate, how the early Persian believers then shifted their focus away from this kind of political reform to social reform through the emergence of high schools and health clinics. It's an incredibly exciting chapter, so you're in for a real treat. Now, Mujanjan, in our last episode, you gave us the background and context to the second book of Abdu'l-Bahá, which we've been discussing, his treatise on politics. Now I guess Abdu'l-Bahá's treatise really speaks to two different eras in this reform process. Certainly there's the time immediately after the tobacco rebellion from that period around 1891 to the turn of the century, but then there's also that period approaching the emergence of Iran's first democratic institutions in that window between 1906 and 1908, and a lot changes between those two time periods. And the Baha'i community's engagement with these issues changes during those two time periods. How did Baha'i interaction with this discourse change over that period?
2: Well, during the 1890s and the early 1900s, there was a great amount of debate going on within Iranian society about this issue of reform, about what to do about the problems that Iran faced. And the issues that were being debated by the reformers matched many of the Baha'i teachings, for example, the importance of education, the advancement of women, democracy, and so forth. So there was a match between what the reformers were saying and what the Baha'i teaching said. And in some places in Iran, Baha'is actually became leaders of this debate, the discussion that was going on. And in some cases, some of the leaders of the reform debate actually became Baha'is. So there was a lot of intermingling going on there. And throughout the whole of Iran, there was a swelling of of this call for reform, and it was uniting all elements of Iranian society. So everyone was calling for reform. And the momentum built up until there was this, what was called the Constitutional Revolution in 1906-07, to during which the Shah caved into the demands for reform and uh, agreed to there being a a constitution creating a, a, a democratic form of government. During this time, Abdu'l-Bahar became increasingly concerned about the direction that events were taking, particularly after the constitution was put in place in 1907. And there were several reasons for this. The most important, I think, was the fact that before the granting of the constitution, as I say, the whole country was united. The reform movement was a bringing together of all elements of, of society. But once the constitution was granted, this unity fell apart and the conflicting factions arose. And particularly some of the religious leaders began to call for a Sharia-based constitution, in other words, uh, and, and Sharia-based laws. In other words, that the, the, this new constitution and, and the laws that were be, going to be created under the constitution should be based on the Sharia. So there was that faction. Then Just at the time when the constitution was granted, the old Shah passed away and a new Shah came to power, and he wanted to seize back some of the power that had been taken from the Shah in the constitution, so there was him, and he gathered a faction around himself, and he actually joined up with the clerics so that they became, in effect, one faction, although there was obviously a a fundamental contradiction between the Shah wanting to get powers back to himself and the clerics who wanted a, a sharia based constitutional law and in effect they they becoming the sort of determiners of governance and even among the reformers there was some disagreements with some wanted sort of pushing to the extreme and some saying no we we have to keep moderate we want to keep everyone with us if we push to the extremes we will lose the backing of the population so the whole of the the unity of of the movement fell apart. So that was one factor. The second factor was that Abdu'l-Bahá became concerned that if the reforms were seen as Baha'i-inspired, if the Baha'is became too prominent in the reform movement, people would attack the reform movement as being Baha'i-inspired, and this would be used to discredit the reform movement. And so he, he was concerned about this and 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 wanted the bahai's to just hold back a little bit on on their advocacy later he he also because once the unity of the reform movement started to fall apart he could see that the Baha'is were going to be used as sort of pawns in the middle. Each side was accusing the other side of being Baha'is and Baha'i-inspired. So the reformers were saying that the royalists, the the supporters of the Shah, were Baha'is and Baha'i-inspired, and the Shah and his supporters were saying that the reformers were Baha'i-inspired, and the whole reform movement was actually a, a promulgation of Baha'i teachings. So the Baha'is were going to get caught in the middle of all of this and, and would be persecuted by both sides. So that was another concern of Abdu'l-Baha's. And the third concern of Abdu'l-Baha's was the involvement of the Azalis in the whole process of reform. The Azalis were followers of Mirza Yahya, who, as you know, was the was the half-brother of Baha'u'llah who claimed leadership of the Babi movement after the Bab and who had refused to acknowledge Baha'u'llah's claim to be he whom God shall make manifest the, the figure that the Bab had foretold would would appear. And so these Azalis were opposed, were, were very much enemies of the Baha'is and were, were plotting always to try and do some harm to the Baha'is. And they played a very important part in the constitutional revolution, in, in the reform movement. They they were, some of the leaders of the reform movement were either themselves Azadis or had been strongly influenced by the Azadis. So there was this element also in the reform movement that was causing problems for the Baha'is. And Abdu'l-Bahá became increasingly concerned about this matter. And once the unity of the movement had fractured in 1907, very early in 1907, Abdu'l-Bahá began to advise the Baha'is to withdraw from the whole political process, to, to disengage from this, and to focus on the social reforms, in other words, to withdraw from the political process, but to remain engaged with social reform. So the Baha'is focused increasingly on education, on building up schools, on the advancement of women, on building health facilities. Uh, They they, they, at this time started to build health clinics and and try to bring modern medicine to Iran. They built modern baths to replace the stinking, unhygienic public baths that were available in Iran at that time and replace them with modern public baths with showers and, and cleanliness. And they uh, began to elect their governing bodies, the administrative councils that eventually became the the local assemblies. They began to elect these uh, and so therefore push forward the idea of democracy. So they, they were still engaged in the reform process, but not in the political aspects of the reform process, which was becoming increasingly fractious and, and the source of huge conflict in society.
1: That must have been a huge challenge for the Baha'i community of the day. I mean, navigating that transition from being engaged with the political reform process, you know, and then when Abdu'l-Baha, of course, sees that that process is derailing and, and advises the community to disengage with it. I mean, it's remarkable how well the community did do that. I mean, you have really very few exceptions of seeing the Baha'i community really shift, you know, in obedience to this uh, this guidance from Abdu'l-Baha. But it must have been a difficult challenge. I mean, they must have been very excited by seeing the changes that were starting to occur. And then, of course, they, they had to navigate that transition away from what was this unifying process that was in motion.
2: Yes, I, I think it was... Very confusing initially, at any rate, both for the Baha'is and also for the reformers because they had seen the Baha'is promulgating the same ideas that they were promulgating, and they couldn't understand why now the Baha'is were sort of withdrawing from the process. Uh, so it was confusing for them as well, uh, and we have instances in in Shiraz and and other places where the, these the leading reformers in the city who sort of come to the Baha'is and say, you know, what are you doing? Why why are you doing this? And so forth. And th- there were undoubtedly a few Baha'is who, well, put it this way, it was difficult to get this message out across the whole community. You have to understand, you know, we the, the means of communication were very poor in those days. So there were individual Baha'is who, who continued to be engaged in the political process and who, you know, were unhappy to to withdraw completely, but they were a very small minority. You could probably less than five people who continued to be prominent in the reform process after Abdu'l Baha had issued these instructions. Most of the Baha'is did comply and did withdraw from politics. And although it was very hard initially, in retrospect, one can see that it was necessary. Some writers have claimed that the Baha'is, by withdrawing from politics, missed out on the chance of leading the political process and being an influential factor in Iranian society. But in retrospect, we can see that it was the right thing to have done, because to have become engaged in this fractious political process, it would have been to endorse and become immersed in in that process, which was so competitive, so divisive, so fractious. That process was becoming increasingly fractious in Iran as indeed it is in many parts of the world. And it would have meant buying into and helping to perpetrate the sort of hierarchical social structures that we see today are demonstrably falling apart. Neither the political process nor the social structure that that Baha'is would have been endorsing if they had entered the political process was the sort of thing that Bahá'u'lláh and Abdu'l-Bahá had in mind. It wasn't the mission of Bahá'u'lláh and Abdu'l-Bahá to be reinforcing that failing system. And Abdu'l-Bahá rightly perceived that the right thing to do was to withdraw from that in order to build an alternative, that Baha'is needed to disengage from the political process, otherwise it would have sucked them in and subverted them. And they needed to disengage from that in order to build a new type of society in which leadership wasn't with individuals, uh, whether you're talking about religious leadership or political leadership, it wasn't with individuals, it was through consultative processes, collective decision making, collaboration rather than competition, all of these things that we now realise are part of the community building process could not have occurred if the Baha'is had remained within that highly fractious, highly competitive Political process. The Baha'is needed to disengage from the political process in order to advance their true aims, which was to build a radically different type of society.
1: You can see this modern parallel, I think, with the struggles of what some of the Baha'i believers must have felt at that time. You know seeing the influence of the faith in this reform process but then seeing its uh its its limitations and 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 being caught in that struggle and you can see some modern parallels with baha'is who may feel like you know the the society around us needs us and there are ways that we can contribute but by the same token the political processes are just so wrong and you can see how that same kind of problem exists even today so there there is a lesson there in the example which Abdu'l-Bahá provides, which I think has a very modern parallel for Baha'i communities today.
2: Yes, I, I think that's the, the big lesson that uh, you can draw from all of the discussion we've been having, that that first of all, Abdu'l-Bahá's treatise, The, the Secret of Divine Civilization, is just as relevant today as it was when it was first written in 1875. We're still struggling with this issue of, of the, values and and what should be the sort of fundamental values of our society and, and from where are we going to draw those values and the role of religion in society, all of these discourses that Abdul Baha enters on in that treatise are still relevant today, are still very much needed today. And we can draw a lot of inspiration from what Abdul Baha wrote about in that book of, of you can't just have political or even social reforms, you've also got to have the individuals transformed in order for those reforms to to work, in in order to have real social progress, in order to have uh, communities, uh, united communities that are, are progressing. So all of those sort of issues that he talks about are important. We can see today the importance, particularly in Iran, of his call for religious leaders not to get involved in the political process and how disastrous it is for a country if religious leaders start to involve themselves in politics. And we can see the importance of his call for the Baha'is to disengaged from politics because it's so divisive, because it's so competitive, because it's the very antithesis of the sort of society that Baha'is are trying to build, which should be based on consultation and collaboration and unity, rather than the divisiveness which a present-day political system in every part of the world creates this increasing polarization of the community, the the uh, fractious and, and heated nature of the debates that go on and the way they degenerate into just name calling and, and personal attacks and so on, all of these things were going on in Iran at the time that abdul Baha called for the Baha'is to disengage from the political process. And they're going on today. And for exactly the same reasons, Baha'is need to keep out of that political process and concentrate on community building, society building, and the sort of general plans that, that the Universal House of Justice is setting before us as a way of creating an alternative that people can turn to as they increasingly see that the answers are not going to come out of the political processes that are going on in their in their societies
1: so mujanjan just uh wrapping up today what impact do you think th- these, these various uh forms of guidance that Abdu'l-Bahá provided across the secret of divine civilization, you know, this treatise on politics and, and and his other counsel. What impact do you think that ultimately had on Iranian society?
2: Well, it's, it's very difficult to say because, uh, as I said, Abdu'l-Bahá published both treatises were published anonymously. So the impact was not to advance knowledge of the Baha'i faith, directly. And indirectly, we know people who read these treatises, but we don't know what impact it had on them. They were published, they were circulated, uh, and because they'd been published anonymously, they could be freely circulated among individuals in society. So the Baha'is were handing them out to influential people, particularly those people who were engaged in the debate on social and political reform. So, all of that was going on, but but we have very specific examples of ways in which it may be that the, that the Bahá'í teachings were influencing the Reformers. For example, in the early stages of the Constitutional Revolution, uh, one of the demands of the Reformers was that in every town and, and village uh, an Adalat Khanesh should be established. Now, Adalat Khanesh literally translated means House of Justice. Uh, the Bahais use the Arabic term Beit al Ad, but Adalat Khaneh is just the Persian for Beit al Ad. So these reformers were calling for each village and town to have a House of Justice to be the place where every individual could go to for justice. Now, you know, where had they got that idea from? It was, you know, it hadn't come out of thin air. They had obviously been talking to Bahais. They'd been reading the Bahai writings. They had seen this concept that Bahá'u'lláh had introduced in the kitab Akhtas and in and in, in others of his writings, and they had thought, "Well, this is a good idea," and they put it. Then they were putting it forward as part of their program, as part of their agenda.
1: So, yeah, you you can't point. have a lot of debate about House of Justice being Bahá'í terminology. <laughs> That's clearly, clearly Bahá'í terminology for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, we've got evidence, but 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 you know how extensive it was, and so on. It's it's impossible to say. I think we can continue to collect evidence and get get gain a better and better understanding as time goes by. But at this stage, at any rate, of our research, is a, I don't think anyone can say definitively how widespread the influence of these well we know the influence of the ideas was widespread but you know what effect it actually had on what was being said and done i don't uh, i don't think we can say specifically
1: of course the influence of the community of the bahai community you know there are, there are some really very particular dimensions to that. Particularly, I think, two areas which which stand out. One is the inclusion of women in the national discourse, which really was a very unique kind of Baha'i contribution, if you will. And the other is the participation of the regional areas in Iran. I mean, a lot of the reformers, of course, would have been having these debates in Tehran, but it was the Bahá'í community that really helped make that a national discourse, rather than, you know, the discourse of a community. Could you could you talk about those two particular strands of of the reform movement?
2: Yes, I, th- I think the reform movement was really a very small number of individuals who were talking mainly in Tehran, but also there were there were groups of reformers here in all of the major cities, but but only the larger cities and. As I've said, they, they they were talking to the Bahais. The Bahais were part of the movement. The conversations were going on. For example, we know in Esfahan, the reformers were actually meeting in the home of the leading Baha'i of Esfahan. Uh, so his home was the center of the reform debate. Uh, in Sari, all of the leaders of the uh, that's the capital of the province of Mazandaran. Uh, the all of the leaders of the Reform movement. But almost all of the leaders of the reform movement were Baha'is, and and they were they opened up a, a library in the town where they people could go and read the reform newspapers that were being published and and discuss the issues that were being raised. So. The Baha'is were very active. But what the Baha'is were doing, which the reformers had no ability to do, was to also take this debate down to the level of the small towns and the villages of Iran, because the same teachings of the advancement of women the importance of education and so on were being also promulgated by the bahais in the small towns and in the villages and these reformers the were intellectuals who were in the large towns but they had no they they couldn't reach to the smaller towns and villages and promulgate these teachings across such a, a wide area of iran so the, it was the Baha'is who were taking that debate to the small towns and villages in in Iran, and among the teachings that uh, they they were promulgating, as you mentioned, is is the advancement of women. This was something that it was certainly mentioned in the in the writings of some of the reformers. Uh, not so much in the early phase in the sort of 1860s and 70s and 80s, but as we come closer to the time of the constitutional revolution, uh, you do start to see this in the debates among the uh, the reformers. But again, it was the Baha'is who were sort of at the forefront of this and, and were leading the debate in respect to the, the advancement of women in, in society, that there were some prominent women among these people who were debating this matter who were Baha'is. Um, Ta'ira Khanum in, in um, Tehran, for example, was writing articles in the reform newspapers and journals, and, and she was very prominent in, in the discourse that was going on in in Tehran. So so there were individual women who were taking this forward. And there are lots of other ways in which the Baha'is were um, taking this forward, for example, by building schools for girls. uh, And and the example of of some of the American Baha'i women who actually came to Iran, settled in Iran and helped the Baha'is both to build schools and to build medical facilities in Tehran, their their very presence in Iran was, was a model for Iranians to look at and see that, yes, it was possible for women to play an active role in society, to be educated, to mix freely with men without corrupting the morals of, of, of society, and so on. So uh, the, the Baha'is were sort of, as it were, exemplifying the sort of thing that the rest of Iranian society could, could achieve.
1: That's fantastic. And just as 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 we're saying this, Mushanjan, I think it has such an interesting, has such interesting implications for today, you know, and and the 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 discourse, the national discourse in Iran today around the role of women, and you know, you see this influence that the Baha'i community had really in in the origins of this debate in Iranian society.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that, that Iranians themselves are increasingly recognizing that the Baha'is have been written out of Persians' history to a large extent. They've been sort of completely ignored. But just in the last 10 years or so, people have started to look back and say, yes, the Baha'is were actually quite important. They did play a role. They were contributing to society and and starting to look at these histories and, and reassess the role of of Bahais in Iranian history, so I think that that is starting to happen. It's uh, there's a long way to go still, but it is starting.
1: Thanks again for joining us today, Mujanjan. It was such an enlightening experience.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a it's been a pleasure.
1: Before closing today. I think it would be good for us to reflect a bit on the amazing history that Dr. Momen has shared with us across these two episodes, because there are so many things we can learn from it that have direct implications for today. First of course is the whole idea of governance with integrity. I think people worldwide feel this need now more than ever. It's what is most lacking in our political institutions of the day. Second is the history of the rise of Iran's first democratic institutions, and the influence that the early Baha'i community had in this evolution. This is clear in the vocabulary of the movement, referring to representative bodies, for example, as houses of justice. It's clear in the reform agenda. And it was the Baha'i community that truly made this a national discourse, reaching even small towns and villages, rather than limiting it to the capital and to a few major cities where these intellectual reformers were debating their ideas. So it's Baha'is who take it from being an intellectual discourse to a national discourse. So here too, we see that in their society-building initiatives around governance reform, the early Persian believers had impact, even if we can't map the exact extent of this influence. Third, we see the integration of a discourse on the advancement of women weaving its way into the reform process, primarily as a direct result of the engagement of the early Persian Baha'i community. This takes on a particular significance, I think, today, where the question of the rights of women has taken center stage in Iran. So it's remarkable, particularly in this context, to understand that the genesis of this discourse around the rights of women in Iran can be traced back to the effort of these early Baha'is in their society-building initiatives. Fourth, we can see Abdu'l-Baha's warnings about the consequences to the progress of the nation if governance is facilitated by Iran's clerics. This I think is truly prophetic. Now, the Iranian revolution gives us the opportunity to test Abdu'l-Baha's assertion here. Today, the clerics do rule Iran. They have for over 40 years. And I'll leave it to you to weigh its consequences for the progress of the nation. The effect this has had on the human rights of its citizens, on its material progress, on the state of its natural resources, on the rights of women, on Iran's global standing and reputation. I mean, I'll leave it to you to draw your own conclusions. But it does allow us to clearly test Abdu'l-Bahá's assertion. So here, too, we see how incredibly relevant this warning from Abdu'l-Bahá was, even a hundred years later. And finally, and perhaps most important, I think this pivot of the community in disengaging with the political reforms once these movements became so divisive has important lessons for the Baha'i communities of today. It's hard being a Baha'i. And seeing so much injustice all around you it's always tempting to want to join in the protests of the day working to bring justice by seeking to punish the aggressor removing governments engaging in such injustice but as hard as it is it's important for us to understand that this is not our role we uphold principles but we're not in the business of opposing governments even those that persecute us. And this is often a difficult path for us to walk. We'll discuss this more in future episodes. But for now, just put yourself in the position of these early believers. They are seeing the ideas they've been advocating for suddenly finding widespread acceptance, and they must have been incredibly eager to engage with the social action of the day. But Abdu'l-Baha advised against this. He asked the believers to disengage as the process had become too divisive, and the community, in obedience, shifted its focus from political to social reforms. There's a lesson for us in this example, and it's a lesson that's incredibly timely. We'll all be challenged trying to figure out how to navigate through the social issues of the day without being consumed by them, and by still maintaining our unifying framework. Again. This is a topic we're going to explore much more fully in future episodes, but for now, let's just look to and admire the historical example we see in these early Persian believers. So we've learned a great deal across the course of these two episodes. In our next episodes, we're going to continue our dialogue with Dr. Mujan Momen, but this time we'll be focusing on the social reforms in Iran that followed primarily focusing on the evolution of Baha'i schools in Iran. It's a remarkable story, perhaps our best example of society building yet in the history of our faith. So I'm sure that it's a history that will truly inspire you. So thanks again to Dr. Momen and thank you for joining us today. Don't miss our next exciting episode of Society Builders.
0: Society Builders paved the way To a better world, to a better day A united approach to building a new society There's a crisis facing humanity People suffer from a lack of unity It's time for a better path to a new society Join a conversation for social transformation Society Builders Conversation, for social transformation Society Builders yeah, yeah. So engage with the local communities And explore the exciting possibilities We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move The paradigm is shifting It's so very uplifting It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove Join a conversation for social transformation, society builders. Ooh. Join a conversation for social transformation, society builders. The Bahai faith has a lot to say, helping people discover a better way. With discourse and social action framed by unity. Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation For social transformation Society builders Ooh. Join a conversation the social transformation Society builders